Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Tales of Recovery. I'm Grisalves, your host, and that cafe retreat is coming up soon. So I have been getting a lot of people asking me questions and comments about, first of all, why are you doing a death retreat? Number two, that sounds brutal. That sounds so intense. And so I'm going to tell you my story about death and death cafe and hopefully try to, um, I guess, come, you know, submit this message that really what it means is learning how to live in the present moment. And we're not really living in the present moment currently. And there's so much hustle and so much anxiety and so much stress. And we've been really disconnected as a society, as a culture from the earth, from our bodies, from our ancestral way, way, way in the day, hundreds and thousands of years ago. So it really has been affecting us. We're one of the most diseased cultures in the world, countries. And I mean, I think in general, there's just so... Um, we're so um, not well, unwell. And one of the reasons that, besides being disconnected, is really, I think, this fear of confronting the reality, the reality that maybe I'm addicted to something, the reality that maybe I'm sick, the reality that such and such person is going to die one day or that I'm going to die one day. And so we continue to avoid. Of course, death is such a huge huge impactful thing that it's hard to come and talk to and talk about it when you you know can't even handle that you're working your way into debt because you keep shopping your way to feeling better or that you are you know hooked onto a substance or just haven't done any therapy in your life and i mean everybody needs to go to therapy that's just how it is if you've never been well you might as well call someone right now because if you think that therapy is not necessary then that's, I think that's one of the problems to begin with. We have so many options and so many solutions now or practices to help assist us in really returning back to our bodies in the present moment and to continue to seek this, hopefully, this opportunity really to, to breathe a little bit deeper and to allow ourselves to be um, okay with, like Gabor says, disillusionment, uh, Gabor Mate, or, um, you know, a lot of my Buddhist teachers, just the impermanence and the constant change of things that are, that is the one 100% thing that we can actually rely on. Things are going to change. There is no certainty. There is no, well, God willing, or whatever the religion says, or, well, this is my path. There's always things that, that can, you know, that are inside of our, of our bodies, of our intuition that we know might be better for us, but we don't do them because of programming. We don't go to therapy because the programming says, well, only crazy people go. We don't step out of the cult of family or religion because then we have this sensation that, well, then I'm not going to be invited. I won't be able to go here anymore, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, you know, the most of the... Um, crazy people out there are the most free and liberated because they're not anymore conforming to what these society standards of, of the shoulds and how things need to be uh, are because they don't need to be any particular way. If we have a, an, an awareness, a consciousness about our own health, our own well-being, our own responsibility for our sovereignty, that is going to expand into whoever you're contacting with. 
into other people, into society, into your kids, into whatever. And we we have a we have choices now, honestly, that maybe people didn't have 50 years ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. The choices, at least, I guess, in my you know, we're worse around it. To actually, you have the choice in your mind anywhere. Even Nelson Mandela, who was in jail for years, he still had a choice. They didn't take, you know, his his spirit, his soul, his 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 mind power to just be, you know, working hard at not allowing anybody else to crush your spirit. And so, one of the things that we that we work at in these death workshops is sitting with this reality that. We have been sold this lie about you must always be young forever and never, you know, and and it's just always positive and always good and make a lot of money and have all these, you know, beauty treatments and and, um, do whatever you can to live forever and be a rock star. And when we're not doing that, we feel like such failures. And it's, and it's the question for me is who benefits from me thinking that I, need to live until 100 looking like I'm 20 or like or, or, or have Madonna's body when I'm 53 and that I that there's certain lifestyles that I have to be having uh, in order to be you know meeting these these expectations these standards everybody's life is fucked up everybody's trying to do the best they can and when we go in to think about what will I be doing on my deathbed And that is if we even get a chance to be in a deathbed because some truck can come by and just run me over tomorrow Uh, or an unexpected diagnose can take it away from me way sooner than I thought. So it's, there's so many different, uh, and you know, and what do we typically do? You go to the doctor freaking out for the yearly exam. Oh my God, I hope they don't find anything. I hope there's no fucking tumors. I hope the blood works okay. And then you go on to live another year of unconscious living, eating McDonald's, drinking the Kool-Aid, doing whatever things aren't really good for your body because your body gets used to feeling this way and you forget that you can actually feel better. Um, And so that's, you know, it's a complex, it's a complex issue. It's not just showing up to death cafe or a death retreat thinking, oh God, if I go there, because here's where the superstitious superstition comes in right i don't want to talk about that because then for sure it's coming i don't want to read about that because then oh i'm calling it in let me tell you it's coming it happens every day every day we have small losses every day certain things of you know since you're born you're on your way to dying we have this experience here and part of allowing ourselves to be you know held in this experience without so much struggle, which I guess struggle is just part of the way, right? One of the noble truths is just, there's gonna be suffering. That's the first one actually. But we don't have to stay in the suffering. You know, you can learn to observe it and and kind of come to terms with the fact that life is hard, it is what it is, but how can we expand into, you know, maybe kind of like what Nelson Mandela did, is just to, even when you're in this prison, or in this horrible job that you hate, or in these relationships that are fucking killing you, that you can practice going inside of your body and going to therapy and going to coaches and going to these sessions where you can begin to figure out that you're not a victim. 
you know, a long time ago when I started in, in these meetings, when I was like 25, 26, and I would go to all these meetings, you know, 12-step meetings, one of the speakers once came up and said to me, you know, you're not a victim, you are a volunteer. And I think I probably should have tattooed that on myself because I constantly forget it. I am not a victim. I am volunteering to be this victim and blaming and blaming everybody. It's, you know, it's this happened to me, that happened to me. And when you begin to own the responsibility of your, of my part in it and my, I guess, even my enjoying, you know, being this victim or my enjoying being like, oh, this all happened to me and poor little me. And it's because I'm a woman. It's because I'm Mexican. It's because this, it's because that. And eventually, you know, it's part of the journey, I guess, you know, to be angry and to think that somebody else did this to you. And yes, our adults, our elders had a lot to do with it because they themselves have been robbed of these birth-based old school natural ways, of these like ancient traditions and ancient ways of being connected to earth, connected to the elements, connected to our bodies, connected to spirit. You know, we're all just now working in computers, trying to make money, seeing how much we can invest so that I can have a good retirement and going from event to event and from sport to sport and getting our kids all hustled up so they can be the best and we can be the winners. Parent of the Year Award. And, um, you know, when something hits you really intensely, like, boom, you know, when I was, I don't even remember how old I was, but the first person that died that I was somewhat close to age when was, you know, my, this friend of ours in, in Tijuana and she was young. You know, you sit there, you look at the, at the coffin, you go to the burial and you're like, there's two ways to think about it, right? Most of us think, oh shit, thank God it wasn't me. Oh, thank, thank goddess and all everybody that it wasn't my kid or my brother or me. The other way to think about it is, it was her time. Either way, it's horrible, right? It's it's such a crush to the heart, to the to the nervous system, this computer body that we live in, because the loss is intense and we are sentient beings and feeling is really, really hard to do. And so that was the first time that I realized, I mean, I think I'd realized it before, you know, even being really young, I was always kind of scared about going to bed thinking, this thing is going to end and then what's going to happen because this is going to go on and on and on. And once I'm dead, you know, a therapy, um, compassionate inquiry therapist that I work with one couple times, she's great, told me that that's called the fear of non-existence. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, you're dead. You're not existent here anymore. It's beyond even the fear of what happens after you die. It's just like, that's it. So these questions, the intensity of these, of these questions, I think we can be used to fuel, first of all, to confront it, to see what I'm avoiding, to see where I can do a little more expansion and realize the capacity that I have to actually live to the fullest in, in joy and in sorrow and to be prepared. And so the Death Cafe... Uh, retreat has two aspects of it, right? There's there's a particular like the the embodiment part of it, right? How am I living in this body right now? 
because you might be afraid of dying or going to some death retreat thing, but however, are you really living or are you the walking dead? My friend Rosa calls the people at the border. It's like, yeah, the walking dead. There's just like this like constant suffering and you're just walking around doing the thing, you know, checking into work, paying the bills. Oh, another day. Oh my God, I can't wait till Friday and I can go get drunk with my friends. And then Monday's coming again. It's a really important question. And the younger and the quicker you get into there and begin to offer your, you know, your heart into into tending to this situation, then yes, there will be work to do, but you will, will that's how you become more alive. I the first time I remember thinking about really planning for death was I mean I had seen so many people die and the families coming in like I want her to go here, she wants to be in the hospital. That person wants to die at home. That person and then the whole chaos that everybody got into because there's so much pain and, and nobody's really practicing, you know, two hours of meditation every day. So it's intense. All of your anxiety and all your unworked trauma and problems bubble up and you dish it out to everybody. So a lot of what I would think was, you know, when I die, we better have our shit together. And I remember thinking about this when my baby was little. She was probably like, although it was maybe six months or seven months old, the first time I had to travel away in this um, this work thing. That they, I, don't know, I had to go to this training from work. It was a week away from her. And I literally was losing my mind, having to get on an airplane and going away. And what if I died on the airplane? And there she was now with a, a dead mother. And, you know partner would like laugh at me and think, what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. But I literally wrote this long letter to her in case I would die. And then I thought, nobody's going to listen to the letter. We better get our shit together. So we, we met with a couple of lawyers, people that would, would do wills and testings and all that. And I remember maybe, I don't even know how long it took, but it was quite simple. It, it seemed more complicated, but you basically decided, okay, well, then what? So like, if I'm in a coma, you're in a coma, what do we want? Do we want to just be plugged into the machines forever? Or do we want to have a, you know, a release? Like if there's nothing else to do and we're, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. I mean, wait, if there's nothing else to do, there's nothing else to do. If you're still young and there's something to do, let's try to do it. But if you're like 70, 80, you're super sick, even at 50 or 90 years old, well, can we allow ourselves the natural way, which is dying? And it was intense to think about it. And then we said, yes, yes, we can. So I wrote that in there. Like, don't be, you know, I don't want to be kept alive with machines. I want to die at home. I, this is what I want for and people to come to the funeral. This is what I want to happen. And, you know, put, I don't know, your, your things in a trust, if you have a house or whatever, and, Please take care of my kids, you know, my parents or my sister or my brother-in-law, whatever. But how did it all organize? Um, and then, you know, actually having the documents there and signing it was kind of a, a very satisfactory thing for me. I said, okay, I'm being a responsible person. And we were barely 30 years old. So that was it. That was done. And I put that in the back burner and never thought about it again for years. For years until 
my mom had a stroke and then she was sick and then they had nothing in place. My mom or dad had nothing like that hadn't written what they wanted. They, you know, we barely were able to find my mom's password somewhere to be able to get into her medical and, you know, emails to see what was up with the doctor and her medications, whatever, all the 50 million medications she was on before she moved to another insurance. And we got way more holistic and natural and, and that was one of the things that helped me be able to talk to her. Like, listen, mom, this isn't looking very good. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure you heal and that we can have the best quality of life. But meanwhile, let's prepare. And she would say, well, no, no, no. nobody's dying here. No, we're not going to talk about that. I said, listen, I already have written out what I want. This is what I want. If I get sick and you're here, mama, I don't want you to have me plugged into machines. I want to be in my home. You know, peacefully with as much, you know, assistance for palliative care that can have, you know, music and the therapy animals and psilocybin and, uh, you know, my friends coming over to do sound healing and just a peaceful at home allowance of nature. I don't want to have to be taken to hospital every two weeks just because I'm, you know, holding on, grasping onto something that's. I mean, the, the, you can't really change anymore. That was in my in my paperwork. I showed her the paperwork, and she said, "You did that paperwork?" I said, "Yes, like 20 years ago." It's just I just did it when I had kids. I just figured that this was something that was important in case I was gone. Who would take care of them? You know how I wanted to die. So it's like an advance. I forget what it's called now. The word left my head, but an advanced directive. And so we got the paperwork and that was the introduction for me to go in to tell my mom and my dad, because we did this too, this is what we do. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, I just did a post recently about my mom and remembering her and how sometimes she was the mom and then sometimes I was the mom and I was a daughter and she was a daughter. And a lot of us are in that situation, especially when parents are so young, you know, you don't even know what the fuck you're doing. And, and you're not really even following your own intuition as a human. You're, you're, you listen to the, the neighbor or the book or some expert instead of really listening to yourself. So part of connecting to yourself, part of my connecting to what I was doing in my life was going in and taking care of these documents. And that is one of the things that we're offering at the death cafe workshop retreat. There's going to be, um, you know, you, you don't even have to pay a lawyer to do it. We have all the information. I mean, you can get a lawyer after it if you want, for sure, if you want to do it. But you have, these forms are available online. Everyone thinks you have to have an attorney. They make things easier and then it's done. But you can have an advanced directive and you can have a will. This is what I want when I'm dead. And then this is what I want you to do or to help me, to help me to die when I'm in my last days, right? Hopefully when we're 100 years old and just did the last yoga class and ice bath and now you're ready to die. That would be ideal, but who knows if that's going to happen. But when you kind of take care of those things, number one, well, you're owning your power because now nobody else can come in and tell you this or that or this or that, especially if you're, you know, if you have a, a partner and not legally married or if you have, you know, your friends that might, you know, 
maybe you don't have close family and then people are going to come in your long lost uncle joe from whatever and wanting to come in and since they're the next of kin they'll have more power at the hospital or wherever the fuck you are instead of your dear best friend that you've been telling her i want it to be like this i want it to be like that she'll be powerless unfortunately that's how it rolls in this society so if you want to have that in order this is a great place to come and learn about how to have that in order advanced directives Having your will, working out a trust. What does that all even mean? It's simple and you can have that done. On the other side, these also, these, these decisions bring up a lot of awkwardness and, and part of what we've been taught in this culture, in this society, in this time of you know, whatever time on our earth is that we don't talk about those things. Oh, I don't want to talk about it because then it's coming and then I'm calling for it and I don't want to deal with it and I'll deal with that when, it, when I get there. And that's also not very helpful. I mean, you know, before, I think maybe like five years before even my mom had her stroke, my dad was really sick at one point in the hospital with, um, you know, they had to give him an operation because he was septic because of something in his stomach. And he was like, the, it was an emergency operation and we were there advocating for him because if you just leave someone in the hospital first of all you can't do that anymore okay your friend your neighbor your parents someone's in the hospital go hang out with them take turns get a little team in the village to go in and take because you can't be there by yourself they're overwhelmed with 50 million other patients and procedures and having to do things a specific way so i was in there we're advocating i'm like hey listen i think this this isn't working out what you're doing here Call the doctor, move him to cardiology, emergency operation, because he was, you know, his body was getting all infected. And the doctor was like, mm, you need to call your brother and sister because I don't know what's going to happen. And also sign here, advanced directive, whether or not you want me to, you know, keep him alive if he goes into coma. And I understood what he was talking about because I'd been doing this for so many years, helping other people or with friends or whatever. But when I called my brother, I remember he, he was like, what? fuck is he doing i'm not signing. why is he asking me to sign that thing? and this is our reaction because it's too painful what do you mean you can't fix this and sometimes you can't so the death retreats these these death cafes this is these are practices tools information um embodiments just circle times to discuss and see how you feel about you know these really I suppose, like huge topics and to intermingle this with our day to day life to to be having a greater capacity to be grateful, to take care of ourselves, to take care of our people, to to realize that, well, shit, maybe I do need to go to therapy. You know, you go to the gym, you go to get coffee. Why don't you go to somatic experience practitioners? Why don't you go calm your body down? Why don't you go to therapy? There's so much research now showing how our bodies are sick, mostly because we're not tending to emotional issues. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's maybe not as very simple text, but it's simple decision to go down and take that journey. It's, it's, um, it's a compassionate thing, you know, only when compassion is present, and then we say, okay, 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 this is a hard topic. I haven't really done this work. How am I going to figure this out? I'm going to have compassion for myself versus this 
non-compassion, harsh, hustling, you know, harshness, survivalism way that we've been taught and that we've been growing in, which really gives a, a, a way to avoidance, more drinking, more eating shit we don't need to eat, more fucking around with, you know, buying more things and, you know, I have to create this and get that, otherwise I'm not going to be worth enough. So these, these, uh, these expectations, right, these like hard um, expectations on ourselves are really, they get in the way. And so when it, really death retreats, death cafe, it's just such a beautiful way of just breaking all that bullshit because you're straight up and they're confronting it. I mean, when your mom dies, when a friend dies, when a young child dies, it's so talk, um, not toxic. Uh, it just takes such a toll. It's so tolling. It takes such a toll on the body. And we don't allow ourselves to, to have the time. It could take one, two, ten years of your body to be sad and just wrecked and you know you're missing this person so much especially a kid can you imagine and society expects us to just fucking get over it oh it's been a year it's been two years it's been three years we don't have these village practices to gather and just light big fires and weep and cry and you know kick the earth and continue to bring meals to those that are grieving years after their loved one is gone we do it for maybe a month sometimes two months but it's 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 weaving back into our culture these these wisdom ways these these wisdom knowings of of how to be able to hold our bodies in, in ourselves in these villages in such terrible loss and into this reality that we're here on this little journey and it's easy you know it's really practical and the more you you know you sit with these questions i think it's not that it gets easier it's just you're more accustomed to it right it's like the more you work out the more you go to the gym or the more you walk then you expand your capacity to walk more you're not you know running out of breath after two blocks all of a sudden you can walk down three four miles you're doing the you know these these marathons or or whatever but you're you're expanding your capacity you're getting in shape so this death workshop, this death cafe retreat is to get in shape for death. To get in shape for death means that you're going to live fuller, potentially more sensational lives. That's right. And it's September 24th and 25th here in San Diego. It's not an overnight. You come in in the morning and you go home at 6. We will feed you amazing food and have really good um um, offerings and healthy drinks for you and we're going to have circles and beautiful ceremony time as well you know I asked my dad a little bit ago we were driving to the Home Depot and we, on the drive there from my house you go through the cemetery and there's all these tombs and then the cemetery which is I think another really weird thing I don't need a cemetery we should have had our own land hopefully have our own our own family cemeteries but anyway yeah, that's one of the things I trip about a lot. And I think we can also discuss that at the death retreat. But so I asked, you know, my dad mentioned, he just commented, well, I'm close now. It's about pretty soon I'll be in a cemetery. He's 87. 
I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? You're probably going to end up burying me. You're in such good shape, you know. He's such in good shape. And he's like, no. When I asked him, I said, are you scared of dying? And just very calmly, he's like, I am not. It's natural. And I'm assuming it's it's more of an easier way to think or just a, a cognitive way of thinking when you're 87. Like, it's a natural thing. I'm going to die. Who knows when the time comes, you know, if you struggle with it or not, or you're just tired enough where you're like, okay, let's go. Or if you spend, he spends a lot of time contemplating. I always tease him about going to Mass and stuff and how stupid the Catholic religion is. However, his practice is deep. You know, he sits there and I'll go in to say hi and I've caught him a couple of times just sitting there with his rosary, but just really contemplating. And he does it every day. And that's his spiritual practice of going in and following his breath. And uh, and, he, and it gives him so much peace. That dude is really chill. You know, he has also, of course, a lot of life experience. But, you know, his dog died last Thursday. Shotzi was my mom's dog. And it was a little miniature schnauzer. Um, I'll put some pictures on there when I post this podcast of the funeral. Because we had a funeral for her. She was about 15 years old. I got her as a little puppy when my mom had lost another dog. And... And she was just my mom's favorite. She was the most spoiled little schnauzer dog. And when my mom died, of course, dad moved in with us and we had to bring the dog to Shatsi. Shatsi means sweetie, by the way, honey. And it's German, these little German dogs. So my grandfather got one for us when we were like three or four years old. There's been about four or five Shatsis at the house. Every schnauzer we get gets the same name. I think this must have been Shatsi number four. And she was sick. She was old. There was nothing the veterinarians can do. And my dad had been telling me for a while, I think she's ready to die. I think she's ready to die. And I said, well, I don't know. We got her this food and I gave her CBD so she would eat. She didn't want to eat anymore. And about two months into it, my son found her all curled up next to this tree in her backyard. And she, she had died. And my husband picked her up. Julio put her in. She's like, oh, suegro, I have to tell you, Shati passed away. And he called me and he's like, I just had a ceremony back here. We put Shotzi with a bunch of flowers and I lit some kapal and your dad was just watching. Um, and it was just so cool to be able to, even in a little dog, celebrate in the ceremony, right? We built Pistaros Amensis because it's a loss. And it was the last little part of my mom that he had. And also Shotzi slept in his bed and was always following him around. And it was the one thing that he still had to take care of. You know, has she eaten? He would have her appointments to go get her hair done, uh, you know, washed or whatever, and go to the vet. And every day they'd go for a walk, and she would get so excited to go for the walk. And maybe like four months ago, he got her a new collar, and he told me yesterday, she was so proud of her new collar <laughs> when they got the new collar. And I told her, all right, Dad, well, I called the vets, the hospitals, and we're going to take her to cremation. He's like, what? No, I don't want to cremate her. Let's just bury her in the backyard. I'm like, Dad, what do you mean bury her in the backyard? It's so, there's like really hard soil there. We need to bury her. I want the earth to eat her. And plus cremation is really, really bad for the, it is contamination. So I said, all right, let's find a place to bury her and we're going to have a funeral. You know, people, it was like, oh, who's going to end up digging the hole? It's going to be me. And 
you know, I said, well, hold on, let me call my brother and my sister and let's see who can make it. But it was so freaking hot and there were, everybody was working. And so long story short, we found this place, you know, this beautiful yard. And my dad started digging and digging. Um, and I have a little video of him just digging and digging. And then, of course, we took turns because it has to be a three to four deep hole. And that's not easy to dig, especially when it's 100 degree weather and you're 87 years old or 52 like me. And, but you know, we look him in like always to save the day. And he helped us and we placed Shotzi in the deep hole with all these flowers. And, and then my dad put the dirt on top of her. And at the end... Sarah sang a song, my sister showed up, and the wind was blowing and everybody was quiet. And there was Sarah with her beautiful song for grievers, you know. When I rise in the morning, I should ever come sing it. We could play it on the podcast. I think of you inside my heart. That's not how the words go, but that's how it sounded. It was so freaking beautiful. We're all crying because every time you have a ceremony for a loss, other losses come up. And you get to process and alchemize those in your body as well. Which is why sometimes, you know, when you have your friends come visit somebody who's sick and you're crying more than the sick person, the sick, you're like, what the fuck, man? Go do your grieving somewhere else. You're here for the sick person. But these, all of your losses come through. And so after, you know, the whole funeral, my dad got up and he, he just looked at us and said, thank you so much for the funeral. You know, it was this, like, sacrifice you know, of like four hours sweating, <laughs> sweating because it was so hot versus going down and just getting cremated because that's what you do. And um, and so now we have that memory. Now we have that ritual and we have that ceremony. And that's what he wants when he dies. My mom wanted to get cremated. He said, no, no, no. I want to be buried. Um, you know, at the green At a green burial or something like that. And I'm even considering now doing the green burial. Before I would say, no, I want to get cremated. And that's actually in my paperwork because I was just, you know, this fear of, I don't know, getting buried alive or some shit. I think I saw a movie when I was really young about they buried this chick and she was actually alive. And so um, hopefully, you know, I'm not going to be buried alive. But but anyway, you know, you, these, these documents that you make can be fluid and you can change them as you go. But... At least you'll have them and you won't leave this burden to your kids or your loved ones because somebody else is going to be having to take care of you when you're over there in uh, super sick or, or almost about to die and you can't say or do anything. And so it's important. It's important to be responsible for yourself and it's important to do these practices and these rituals that are connecting Connecting us to earth, connecting us to the reality that we are made of the same elements of the earth. We are her children. That's the true mother. Everything else is an illusion. And so we are of these, these minerals and these, you know, that's why you can go and get buried and get transformed into earth again, being the compost. And... We don't want to. We don't want to touch that reality. We're over here thinking that we're going to be like the Jetsons and having this drink that'll never allow you to die or get sick, and that's just a bunch of crap that they sell you. You know how many bottles and vitamins and minerals and all this shit that they sell you so that you can stay younger longer. 
Um, we want to stay stronger and alive and sentient as fuck longer. Quality, open hearts, compassion, a village to go grieve with. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening at the Death Cafe Retreat. It's two days, eight hours each day or something like that. You'll be held, you'll be, you will be laugh. We'll also do some dancing and yoga. It's not all going to be, you know, the depths of, we got to bring it back up, go down, bring it back up with a lot of compassion. So the registration is open and you can go on grisalves.com slash events or DM me or Sarah Knapp at Grief is a River on Instagram for any questions that you have. And we hope to see you there soon. Thank you for listening or watching this video or listening, whatever you're doing. And we'll see you next time. Tales of Recovery.